walking in a country and I've been chasing after my shadow. Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 66. I'm Dave Woodson. Nobody asked me my name. This is part five of the Via Podiensis sequence, and we find ourselves back in Fijac. As I mentioned in episode 65, there are three different major options for walking from Fijac to Kaor, and they all merit a close look. We started out with the default approach, following the GR65 all the way through. We'll turn our attention to the third option, the GR651, through the Sele Valley, in an upcoming episode. Today, though, we talk about the route that follows the GR6 to the GR46, and then on to the GR36, before finally linking back with the GR65 in Kaor. There will be a quiz on this later. But maybe it's just easier to say, we're talking today about the Rocamadour route. If you aren't yet familiar with Rocamadour, do yourself a favor. Go do a Google image search for Rocamadour. Do it right now. You've lived long enough without that. Treat yourself. So yeah, you don't need an elaborate story to know that Rocamadour is worthy of a detour. But here's the elaborate story anyway. Legend says that Rocamadour is named after St. Amador, sometimes also identified as the biblical Zacchaeus of Jericho, who wiped Jesus' face on the way to his crucifixion. Having witnessed the martyrdoms of St. Peter, Paul, and his wife Veronica, Amador slash Zacchaeus fled Palestine and tucked himself away here, where he built a chapel to honor the Virgin Mary. In that chapel, this is still the legend talking, no historical record to back this up, Amador placed a wooden statue, a so-called Black Virgin, which he is sometimes reputed to have carved. Again, the historical record disagrees, as this dates to the 9th century. Eventually, though, and this part didn't happen until the 1160s, the double attraction of the saint's tomb, discovered right about that time, and the Black Virgin drew pilgrims and generated many reports of miraculous healings, making Rocamadour a major pilgrimage destination in its own right. So yes, the main reason to take this option between Fijiak and Kaor is to visit Rocamadour. But the walk itself is really quite good, and relatively lightly used in comparison to the GR65. To better lay out its virtues, I'm joined by two pilgrimage veterans, Canadian Sean Morton and Sonia Richmond, who followed this route back in 2017 and haven't really stopped walking since. After giving the walk its due, we'll then dive deeper into the phenomenon that is Rocamadour. Dr. Dina Weibel, author of A Sacred Vertigo, Pilgrimage and Tourism in Rocamadour, joins me today to talk about the history of Rocamadour as a pilgrim site and the tensions it faces today as it attempts to balance being a sacred shrine and a massive tourist trap. She also, as my students would put it, spills the tea about life in the village, so you should look forward to that. There are few more memorable sites to encounter on pilgrimage 
than walking into Rocamadour. Stay tuned for more on what makes it so special. Sean Morton and Sonia Richmond are prolific pilgrims from Ontario, Canada. Along with their journeys along many different pilgrimage routes, they have embarked upon an even more audacious walk, the 28,000-kilometer-long Trans-Canada Trail. You can find Sean and Sonia at comewalkwithus.online. Well, Sean and Sonia, thank you for speaking with me about the Voie du Recamador, which is one of the variants, one of the options that pilgrims take on the Via Podiensis between Figiac and Cahors. And so we're going to talk about that stage by stage. But before we do, I'd love to just hear a little bit about how you were drawn to this route in the first place. What brought you to the Via Podiensis? And then what also caused you to choose to walk this variant through Rocamador? Well, we walked the Via Pendensis in 2017, and it was a second of seven Caminos. We've actually walked in three countries. (laughs) So I guess like a lot of pilgrims, we're still wandering, we're still learning, and we're still exploring the countryside. I guess in total, we've done the Frances, the Via Pendensis, the Camino Portuguese, Madrid, San Salvador, Primitivo, and then Musha and Finisterre a couple of times. Yeah. We've also been privileged to walk on five Caminos in Canada, a lot of which have been inspired by the Camino de Santiago. So we've had a lot of time out there just walking around. Our decision to do this particular route in France was kind of spur of the moment. We just finished the Camino Francaise like six months before that, and we didn't expect to have the opportunity to go so soon after doing our first Camino. We had a chunk of time. We both had the opportunity. So we were just like, let's go. We'd heard a lot of people talking about the Via Pendensis when we did the Camino Francaise, and everything they'd said about it was beautiful. It sounded beautiful. It sounded great. It was one of the first, I guess, routes we'd heard people talking about. So we thought, okay, let's just, let's try this one. We'll just go for it. We'll do that. In terms of how we picked the variant, that was a really hard decision for us. We wanted to do both <laughs> to the point where we were actually looking at ways we could try to take the bus back <laughs> and <laughs> we'll fit both routes in. We really wanted to do both of them. But I think there were sort of three things that drew us to the variant over the other one in the end. One is Rocamador is a pilgrimage site in its own right. We visited a couple of those in a few different countries, and there's just something about those holy places that draws you to them. I don't know what it is, but (laughs) it it calls to you. So that was the part of it. Another part was I had never come across this phenomenon of Black Madonnas before. I hadn't heard anything about it. I didn't know. There's apparently four to 500 of them in Europe. There's almost 180 of them in France, but it was something completely new to me. And so I just wanted to learn more about that, what that was about. And so that that was part of going to Rocamador. And then I guess finally, personally, I just wanted to see a city built into the side of a cliff. Like I've seen <laughs> pictures of them from all over the world. I've never been to a place like that. And so I really wanted to see that. And so I think that contributed to our decision in the end to take the variant over the Sele Valley. But it was it was a hard decision. <laughs> I understand that kind of motivation so well. You know, a photograph of Mont Saint-Michel was the thing that made me really want to go to Europe. And then I saw a photo of Metaora, Greece. It just boggled my mind. And Cappadocia, Turkey. And I'm with you on Rocamador as well. A picture does just pull you right in. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, that's fantastic. And what tremendous experience you have to draw upon. And I'm I'm glad to be able to talk with you about this route because the reality is that it's a very small minority of pilgrims who are walking along the Via Podiensis who ultimately do choose to walk through Rocamador. So there's not a ton of English speakers with your experience. And one of the issues is just it's longer. So for our purposes here, the way a lot of books will break it down is into about six stages. And so we're going to kind of go six stages, starting in Fijiak. It's about 125 kilometers. And the first stage out of Fijiak is towards La Capelle Marival, about 23 kilometers. We're going way back now, right? We're going back five and a half years. Can you pull anything out of your memories about that first bit, leaving Fijiak en route? Leaving Fijiak was an incredible morning for us. We'd stayed at Le Gite de Carmel and the hospital air is there. When they when we left in the morning, they actually sent us off down the street singing the pilgrim song, Old Treya. Wow. So as we were all walking down the street, it was to this beautiful song, sort of waving and singing. It. And I think that was one of the, the nicest send-offs we've had anywhere on any of our Caminos. It was a really special morning. And the walk itself out of Fijiak was actually pretty nice. Fijiak's a larger town, but we sort of headed out going down the river pathway. So it was a nice walkway under trees, a nice way to leave the city. I think we got out of it fairly fast into the countryside, which was also, it was also nice. <laughs> it was a nice way to leave a city. Sometimes they're not quite as aesthetic, but it was a good one. On all of our hikes, one of the things we're often drawn to is nature. So one of the things that was really wonderful about this was, as Sonia said, getting out of a city in a nice way and going into a forested and dirt pathway and walking towards something that had been described by everyone as quite magical. So that was really wonderful to see as well. It was like walking backwards through history. I don't know if you had that, the opportunity, but also in Fijiak, you can go see the gigantic Rosetta Stone. Yeah. So seeing this piece of history and then walking out of a city towards something magical was something we were really drawn to that day. It's kind of uphill, but it's a soft uphill throughout the morning as you work your way up and very little along the way other than that quiet countryside. It's about 10 and a half kilometers to Cardiac, which is an exciting midpoint on the walk and what you get to experience in that old medieval village going from the ancient of the Rosetta Stone to the medieval of Cardiac. Mm -hmm. Yet another one of those towns that were listed as the most beautiful village in France. They, yeah. they seem to be everywhere. I don't know if it was just <laughs> down this road or, but yes, a wonderful place. You're right. And it had a bakery that was open that had coffee and apple tarts, which always makes <laughs> any village contributes to its most beautiful village in France status, at least in our, our books. It is sometimes more appealing to go to the most delicious villages in France and the, the bakeries go a long way. The thing that stands out to me about Cardelac, and I have been through Cardelac three times, only on this most recent walk was the bakery actually open. So finally for me, instead, the main thing that I've been able to appreciate there is in the old center of the village, there's a bunch of towers and you can climb to the very top of one of them and just admire the compact little core. We had actually wanted to do that, but we got there on a holiday and everything was closed except that bakery. It was like this gift <laughs> from, like, for pilgrims because, yeah, we knew you could climb it and nothing was open. <laughs> One of the challenges we faced on our hike on the Via Pondensis is that unknowingly we walked into the trans Humans Festival. Oh. And so that kind of carried us through for a week. And we were very, very lucky and it was very beautiful, but mistiming it into festivals in Europe can be a bit of a challenge. 
Yeah, holidays and festivals on pilgrimage are a double-edged sword, aren't they? In the abstract, it sounds awesome. And there are some great aspects of getting to witness that, but the inconveniences for the mundane realities of pilgrimage are felt keenly. Yes, you get to explore the culture of a region, definitely, and feel more what it's like being beyond a tourist. But then you also, of course, have the higher costs and finding accommodations, but it all works out in the end. Yeah. All right, we're heading into the second half of this day then. We're leaving Cardillac behind. You have sharp little descent into the woods and then take it from there. I think one of the things that stood out kind of on that day for me was coming to this little lake. Yeah. Later in the afternoon, there's this gorgeous, peaceful pond. We kind of stopped there for a while. It had water lilies floating on the surface. Yes. Mirror-like reflection of the trees. It was this really peaceful spot. And I think that was one of the first times that we'd actually come to a lake on a Camino, like walking across Spain, there were rivers and stuff like that, but we hadn't really come across this kind of peaceful pond lake and just sitting there with the birds singing and the bees. It was really magical. Yeah, it really highlighted that there was a different pace in France too. One of the challenges we found in France is that we were still so used to the Camino Frances, say in Spain, where from saint jean pete port on you just go, go, go. You think you're going to get to the cathedral that day. You have so much excitement and energy. And then you backtrack and do something like the Via Pondensis or do another second route, and your pace slows down more. You're willing to spend more time or have a picnic or sit under a tree. And very much that's part of a culture in France, sitting on these lakes and just having a bottle of wine and talking. And it kind of took us by surprise. And we were just starting to get into that groove heading towards Rocamador. Yeah, I get that. You do have to untrain some habits that you form in Spain when you walk in France for the first time. Mm -hmm. So that stands out to me as well as the major highlight of the walk from Cardillac to La Capelle Marival. I remember a small village, Sampresu, which is a stop along the way, but no services, no facilities anywhere between those two villages. No, not really. No, yeah, you I... could very much tell you had walked off the GR65 or the Camino Way, and you were on a different road at that point. But a nice town to arrive in at the end, La Capelle Marival, which is uh, larger than where you've walked through the rest of the day. The center is quite noteworthy. You come to... Basically, it's a parking lot, really. But around that parking lot is the chateau, large church, another bakery. So you you have the holy trinity of tourist sites right there. Yeah, I think most of that town was closed when we got there. As oh, well. no. And it was still this holiday. But yeah, the first thing you see when you come into the town is the large castle on the edge. I think it was a medieval castle or something like that. And we were able to go into the church. There's a large central square with the bakery <laughs> and on the opposite edge is kind of a raised church. So we were able to visit that. It had some beautiful stained glass windows inside. We spent some time there and then I think we had quite a bit of trouble finding anywhere to eat that night. But there was another little bar on the edge of the square. And it was one of those Camino moments where we were kind of wandering around hungry and <laughs> looking for something and the lady there just offered to make us a meal like they weren't serving food there weren't that many people in the bar and it was one of those times where the kindness of a local <laughs> really made a huge difference to our day in that town it was really nice sometimes you just have to be willing to perform your sadness 
I think we looked pretty pathetic and our French is not very good. So we were sort of trying to ask in poor French if they served anything to eat. Like, do you have anything we could eat? And they were absolutely wonderful. <laughs> Love it when that happens. Well, I hope that you had better luck the next day. The second stage from La Capelle Marival to Gramat is 24 kilometers. And unlike the previous day, it's a day where there's a lot of small villages that are breaking up the walk, which I always enjoy in a walk. I like coming in and out of villages. And so the first stop along the walk is Rudel, which has kind of a squatty fortified church. I mean, what do you remember of that? Yeah, it looks the Church of St. Marshall, I think, or something like that. It, it looks like kind of a castle that's got the crenellated top on it. I don't think it was open when we went through there either, but we got <laughs> to see it from the outside. A really interesting sort of chapel, I guess. It was originally a hospital in the 13th century, and then it was converted into a defensive structure. And later, I think it was used as a shelter for villagers during the Hundred Years' War. So it's kind of a really interesting structure in the middle of this small town. It was probably the highlight of the morning for us was seeing that. Yeah, I enjoyed it. What else stands out to you from this stage? For me personally, I mean, it was a, another really nice walk through the countryside, but we were in the Corsi region, so it was a lot of sheep. So until that time, the Camino had been kind of dominated by cows, which we love. I mean, this was nice, but <laughs> this area we got into the Quercy sheep. The region's famous for these sheep, which have the black eye rings. The countryside changed a little bit, I guess, in that area to the sheep region. <laughs> and I guess in the afternoon, one of the highlights was coming to the Castel de Felix, which was a Quercy hut, one of the rounded stone shepherd's huts with the conical stone roofs. And this was actually quite near the trails. So you could go inside it and take a little break in there. I really like that. <laughs> At this point, we found also that when you begin the Giro 65, there aren't as many yellow arrows, say, as the Camino Francaise. At this mm -hmm. point, we're still in that sort of GR mode rather than a Camino mode. And you're following not necessarily yellow arrows, but Karens with metal crosses on them instead, which is entirely unique to something, especially after coming right from Spain. So we were still always amazed by how each metal cross or iron cross seemed to be a regional thing. It had a regional look. It was independent. It wasn't mass produced. It was really kind of beautiful to find them on the way. And it was reassuring as well. When you leave the GR65, you're a little nervous going on one of these variants. So to keep finding crosses, you assume you're still on the right way. And it was good. You have to keep retraining your brain on what signs to watch for. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, the other place along this walk that stands out to me now, in part because I stayed there this past summer, is Temin, which is a little over 10 kilometers in. You know, it's an option if you want to try to make it to Rocamadour in two days, which is what my group was doing this past summer. So we walked to Temin and then on to Rocamadour. And the distinguishing feature of Temin, along with the Gide, is one of those covered medieval market halls, which are really common in this area. You know, there's another one in... La Capelle, Marival, there's others along the way, but it's a nice small little feature right in the center of the village. But then ultimately onto Gramat. What were your thoughts of Gramat and where did you spend the night? Gramat was a really gorgeous, picturesque town. It's big. Yeah, it's one of the bigger ones. It had all the amenities, but it still managed to be like a really nice sort of medieval feeling town. And we stayed in a really nice gite there, the gite de la Petite Caillou, I think. It's a jeep that's by donation, the hospital there, it's the volunteers there were 
fantastic. And it's a really nice sheet. It's really open and airy. And there were quite a few people staying there. We shared a common meal with them and had a really good conversation. Yeah, it was one of the nicest places we stayed on this variant. I think we really enjoyed that. But just the town itself had a lot to see. I think there's a 16th century clock tower that's kind of near the main square. It's above one of the original archways in the city. There's another one of the covered stone markets that you were talking about yeah. before near this central area. And then there's a church. So there's a lot of stuff to kind of see if you're wandering around, which we often do in the afternoons. Like we'll go take a shower, do our laundry and go back out and explore. So there was a lot to see in Gramat. It was a really nice place. It's kind of surprising because there aren't that many people who walk this route, as we've said. And yet there are three good, legitimate pilgrim sheets in the town. The one that you mentioned, there's a Christian jeet. There's a another one in the big convent on the outskirts of town. So it's well equipped to absorb more pilgrims if they feel like walking through there. Yeah, for sure. So the third stage is why most people make this walk. And it's a short stage because you're going to Rocamadour. It's 12 kilometers, 12 and a half kilometers. And I've actually gotten to the point where I will suggest to people who want to do Rocamadour as a day trip from Fijac, you know, don't take the train to Rocamadour. Take the train to Gramat because this is a fantastic little walk. And then you get to walk into Rocamadour, which is a special thing. So, you know, what do you remember about this little stage? I think it was amazing in almost every way. I mean, there, were, <laughs> there were two moments that really stood out. I think you're walking along sort of through countryside and I don't know, it's like really nice fields and stuff like that. And all of a sudden you see the valley in front of you, like just opening up this limestone canyon with the river down at the bottom. And you, we could kind of hear it flowing down there, but we couldn't see it. And we walked along the top of that for a while, looking down on the ruins of these old mills in that valley. It was a steep descent down to the bottom of this valley, but it was absolutely gorgeous. It was just this tree footpath. It was kind of magical. And then we followed this valley, I guess, at the bottom for quite a while. Kind of felt like Lord of the Rings, like just in the bottom of this canyon with moss and lush green vegetation everywhere. And then finally, at the end of the day, you kind of come out onto a track and you come around a curve in this canyon. And there in front of you, in the side of this cliff, is the city of Rocamador. And I think that's just such an incredibly magical moment to see it up here in this landscape. It was absolutely incredible. And I think you're right, like coming to it from that side is so well worth it. I think the stairs climbing up in Rocamador are a special sort of punishment at the end of the day. <laughs> but it is a beautiful city to approach on foot. You're absolutely right. And you mentioned briefly the ruins of the old mills along the river as you're walking through the woods. I mean, it's like the crumbled remains of an old civilization, you know, just mentioning old mills doesn't do it justice. There's one place where it feels like you are winding your way through a fortress and the river converts into a small waterfall at that point. It's a dramatic scenery that you get to walk through. So yeah, Rocamador is the end point. It's huge. But like you said, the walk, the walk is just so evocative and enjoyable. I don't think the people that visit it on bus or by train or, I mean, it is one of France's biggest tourist spots and pilgrimage destinations. 
And a lot of people clearly visit it by other means, but I don't think they get the same effect as pilgrims walking in and seeing it appear on the edge of that canyon and seeing it just spire above you. Stupendous. So then you're there. What is there to do in Rocamador? Or what did you do that you found particularly satisfying or enjoyable? That city has a lot to offer. <laughs> we entered it by walking up this staircase that I guess is 216 stairs that pilgrims climb as kind of the final stage on their journey to the Holy Sanctuary. So we climbed up that, and I guess that kind of brings you to a lower street that has a lot of touristy kind of shops on it. There's a lot of artisanal places and shops offering touristy things. And then if you climb up to the next level, you come to various holy sites. Among them is the shrine with the Black Madonna in it, which is what most pilgrims are coming to see. A lot of miracles have been attributed to her. There's also the remains of St. Amador in another area up there. We climbed higher up into the city, up into the ramparts. You went to the top. We did. And you can just look out over the valley. You get a stunning view <laughs> out over the valley that Rocamador is in. We did a lot while we were there. <laughs> One of the challenges with Rocamador is it's in the very definition of things unique and almost everything in it seems unique in its own way. And that's kind of an overused word. But I mean, even inside the church, the organ being split down the middle rather than having a single organ is just stunning to see. Just seeing these spires poke over the edge of the ravine is stunning to see. The view over the ravine is stunning to see. It's like this perfect merger of spirituality and nature all in one go. And it is truly wonderful to see. People will sometimes ask, is it too touristy? Am I not going to enjoy it? Am I not going to be able to appreciate it because it's swarming with people? How did you view that? It's a challenge. I mean, you've come through this valley and we were on our own walking through. So you felt like this was kind of an intimate walk. You were just there and you walked through these mills. And then you kind of stumble into a town that is full of many, many packed tour buses full of people. But once they go away, that seems to fade away and the magic comes back out. We were fortunate to have dinner on a, a restaurant there, which has a balcony overlooking the entire room. And it was just spectacular to see the sunset and everything there. And it's at those moments when it is a bit quieter that it returns to being what you think it should be in your mind. But you're right. The tourism is a bit of a challenge at certain times. And I would say to any pilgrim that thinks maybe this isn't for me, I just want to keep going, to just wait for everyone to pull out. Because the moments that are left, especially when the streets are empty and you've got it to yourself, are definitely worth it. And that's the key point. They do leave. Yeah. There's a very small number of people who actually spend the night in Rocamador. So, I mean, I don't know what your situation was, but I was there in July this last summer. I was eating in one of those outdoor decks at a restaurant, and there was one other person in the restaurant at that point. It was empty. Yeah, it's almost like there's two Rocamadors. Like, once the tour bus leaves, there was almost no one there. And we actually went back into the chapel after dinner, and... We were the only people there. There was a nun singing Vespers and her voice just filled this chapel. Like a few hours beforehand, it had just been packed with tourists. And we went back and it was us and this one nun singing. And I think that was one of the most amazing moments on this pilgrimage was just being in this half cave, half church chapel with this beautiful music. 
And it was so completely different than it had been just a few short hours earlier. So yes, it's touristy during the day, but if you stay, it's definitely worth it. And I mean, we came back out when it was dark and looking up at this city that's just lit up at night on the side of the cliff is also one of those amazing <laughs> sort of moments, one of those things to see. I think particularly on the Via Pondensis, this is a lesson for people to pay attention to because it will happen again and again, Cahors, Conk, you will have a tourist wave that comes in and it can be very overwhelming when you've walked off the trail. But when that recedes, there is real magic out there and it's wonderful for those moments. Absolutely. It's so worthwhile. And so even for people who do a day trip, make it an overnight. You can get back to Fijac in the morning and you might as well enjoy it in the best manner possible. Oh, certainly, yes. And there are some who will just walk to Rocamadour, as you mentioned, and then they'll bus back and they'll continue on from Fijac. So even among the, the small minority that walks to Rocamadour, it's an even smaller sliver of that that continues onward from Rocamadour along the way back towards Kaor. And the, the walk from Rocamadour the next day, most people will go 25 and a half kilometers to La Bastide Murat. And it's hard to leave, but we all eventually pulled it off. We all tore ourselves away from Rocamador. What do you remember about the day after? I think leaving Rocamador was also incredibly beautiful because we were walking back out down the valley and it was lit by the morning sun, which was incredibly beautiful in its own right. You just got to remember to turn around and look. Yeah, that's one of the lessons of the Camino, especially this one. Always look back because once you've climbed out of the town in the morning, you can see the, you know, it's beautiful behind you. We kind of thought that the climb back out of the valley was going to be really tough. But I think in the end, we didn't find it that bad. It wasn't super tough getting back out, which was a really nice surprise. That was one of the things I remember. And I think that day was Gorgeous. Like you were kind of surrounded by nature for most of it. I think a lot of the walk was through the Coast de Quercy Regional Park. So it was a lot of natural landscape, remote, removed from civilization. Just a really pleasant sort of walk. There was nothing too tough on that day, I don't think, or I don't remember it if there was. <laughs> what I remember from this day is that you're, of course, not following GR65. You're on a different route. And the variant here is GR46. Yeah, And when we woke up that morning, the hospital arrow who was wonderful to us said that here's your new map because they've rerouted all of GR46. And I think one of the things that's a bit unnerving and maybe people don't take variations is because you're not certain of what can happen out there. Maybe it's not taken care of as well as the Camino or whatever. And so we were very unnerved or I was unnerved in the morning to be handed this new map for a region I don't know. And it was all in French. <laughs> But then you, you think, oh, no, this is why we shouldn't have left GR65. But then you get out there and you discover that the people that care for these routes, when they reroute things or when they, when they change things, they mark it really well. Mm -hmm. It's not hidden. It's not hard to find. You come to realize very soon or very quickly that you don't have to be nervous of the changes that are going on out there. You don't have to worry about leaving the yellow arrows, as I was at times. You can find these new routes and you can still find your way and you can make your way back there perfectly fine. And I'll underscore, you know, I've actually walked it in both directions over the past two years. Waymarking is very reliable right now and you can make it work in either direction quite comfortably. As you were saying, Sonia, 
this is basically all nature on this day, you know, over the 25 kilometers through the woods, down through little pocket fields, back up into the woods. There's a village, Kuzu, that's like five kilometers after Rokamador. No facilities or services there, though there is a new jeet, which is exciting. And then there's the small town of Montfaucon, which is about 20 kilometers in. It is your only possible chance of getting food on this entire walk. So that's one of the things that you have to plan for from Rakamador is that it can be a tough day for food. Yeah, I think we learned that. By this point, we learned and we had a picnic and we actually stopped. There's another gorgeous lake. Yeah. Just below Mont Fuscon where we stopped and I walked up into the town to see if we could get water because it was really, really hot when we were walking that day and there was nothing open when we went up there, but we were able to refill the water from a garden hose. So <laughs> it all worked out. But yeah, we on this route, I'd say carrying a little bit of extra food, snacks to get to the end of the day is a good idea because at least when we were there, there were a lot of holidays. <laughs> Things tended to be closed and there was less amenities than on other parts of the GR65. So we had a really fantastic picnic on the side of this lake. I guess that's one of the biggest differences between this and probably the Camino Frances, if people are looking for their second Camino and considering this, is that it's not necessarily bar, 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 cafe, cafe, cafe. There are some bigger stretches, which aren't insurmountable, but you do really have to think a day ahead or to lunch or whatever and just be prepared for it. Yeah. And if you are fortunate enough to get to Montfaucon when the bar there is open, it is very pilgrim friendly. It has a small grocery attached to it. And it's also associated with a gîte there, which I happened to stay at the year before last. And it's really nice. The old presbytery that's been converted in a comfortable spot. But I imagine you continued on to Labastide Morat then to spend the night? We did, yes. <laughs> As most pilgrims do. So take us to the end of the stage, Labastide Morat. You know, it's got a supermarket, so it's got that going for it. What else do you recall? I don't remember that <laughs> town so well. In the blog, we wrote that it wasn't a large town, but we managed to get confused heading into it. I don't remember what that was. I get it. It's a little bit complicated, and it doesn't have that many big roads, but it's a little awkward. Yeah, I think what stands out for us, we ended up staying in a hotel and just spending the afternoon sitting on the outdoor patio in the sunshine. It was super hot, so we were just in the shade sheltering. And we met a guy that, you know, is from a town that's less than an hour from where we live in Canada. And his story was very similar to our own. And that was just one of those moments where you're like, what are the chances of meeting somebody who's, you know, from so close to home and is such a similar story in the middle of kind of nowhere in France? Apart from that, I don't have strong memories of La Bastide Marat. I'm not sure that anybody does. But if you felt like there wasn't a lot of food along this stage, just wait till the next stage and make sure you do hit that supermarket in La Bastide because the next stage, 24 kilometers to Vers, there is nothing. There's the tiny village of Cross, no services, no facilities. It's 24 kilometers all the way to Vers, no resupply. That is true, but it was a gorgeous walk. Absolutely. Lush green along the river banks. I think I wrote that moss was the one word that would describe that day. Like it was just <laughs> this fantastic tunnel of green that we seemed to follow for most of that day, or that's my memory of it anyway. It was just a really nice walk into Vers. But yeah, as you say, we didn't really pass 
many places to stop or villages or anything like that. We were immersed in nature, which we love. I remember spending the afternoon, Sonia is a sucker for trying to call over the ponies and donkeys that are in the fields nearby the trail. So we can lose entire hours with her just trying to call them over, just to pet them, not to feed them or anything, but we can get easily distracted by ponies and donkeys. <laughs> I'm right there with you on the donkeys. Don't care that much about ponies, but yeah, I will have long conversations with donkeys. But yeah, it's the Vares River. You're just walking alongside the Vares River through the trees all day and... I got to say, I spent the night in Vares two years ago, and I just had not properly appreciated that village because I don't know if you spent much time down on the riverside in the park there, but it is delightful. We did go to that park there because our alberg was hanging off the rock right yes. above the park in a, a wonderful little alberg. Yeah, we stayed at the Le Mont along Vares. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's right on the park. So you have this beautiful view of the river and there's a waterfall just upstream. There's two beautiful bridges in the town. It's a really nice, small, it seemed small to us, like this village. It's really nice. It's quiet. We spent a lot of the afternoon just sitting by the river in the park, which was really nice because it was hot when we were walking that stage as well. So it was a perfect end to that day. Now, a lot of our evenings, we, we just like to go down quaint alleys. We love the painted doorways and the windowways. People have probably seen postcards of this stuff. And you kind of look at that and go, well, you can spend that much time looking at doorways and windows. But then you start to look at them and they're almost artistic. Years and years of paint fading in their own way and metal clasps on them. And you can get caught up on it. So we spend a lot of our nights quietly wandering streets and just looking at people's homes. It's nice to be walking slowly at the end of a day of pilgrimage. And without a backpack. Yeah. And as you said, it can get warm if you're there at certain points in the year. And so the, the cool breeze and a little shade in the evening, it's a good thing. From there, you join with all of the pilgrims who are walking the GR651, the Sele Valley, and you move on to the GR36 across the Lot River and continue onward to Kaur. And I'll be talking about that in more detail with the Sele Valley folks. So I'm curious about one main thing for you and your walk from Bears onto Kaor. The GR36 splits before Kaor, and you can either continue to follow the Lot River, or you can go up and over Mont Sancir. Which approach did you take? We accidentally took the lower route. <laughs> We've been <laughs> planning to go up into the hills because we read about these fantastic views, but we utterly and completely managed to miss the turn. Never saw it. Don't know where it was. Have no idea what we did. But we ended up taking the lower route. Um, and it was uh, gorgeous. I mean, I have no complaints about it. It was beautiful. It was mostly another tunnel of vegetation along the river. So it was really nice. I don't know how we missed the upper route, but... Yeah, we took the lower one. <laughs> if you go back now, they have painted the split on the pole of a freeway overpass. It's huge now. So it was a <laughs> lot easier to miss in 2017. If you go back, you will be able to find it. But yeah, the, the Riverside Walk, especially if it's hot or you're tired, it's shorter, it's flat as can be, and it drops you straight in the east entrance to Kaur. So it has some advantages. Yeah, we, we appreciated the shade and it was actually a gorgeous day because when we left in the morning, the valley was filled with fog 
and it was really, really pretty. And then, yeah, we just kind of went into this shaded tunnel of green, which turned out to be wonderful in the end. It was a really nice walk. <laughs> what are one or two big highlights for you from Coor? We'll wrap it up with that. Well, I guess the Ballantrae Bridge, of course, was really nice. I mean, it was beautiful. We went during the day and then we went back at night and it was lit up. And actually at night was the first time we actually spotted the little devil perched up yeah. on the floor and <laughs> learned about the legend of Satan on the bridge. I think it was one of the first times the church downtown has a giant garden and it has vegetable gardens and everything on it too. And it was more of a community-based church. And it was one of the first times I think I had ever seen that. And it was just absolutely beautiful, the center of town. It seemed to be drawing a lot more people in than we had seen in recent towns in France. The other thing that I just wanted to ask you about is a, as a side note, but something I'm just still curious about is you mentioned walking in Canada. And one of the things that happened during COVID, among the many things that happened and the many other things that didn't happen, is that pilgrims, walkers in North America who are used to looking to Europe for long distance walks started to realize that, hey, there's walking that you can do in North America as well. And there's been this huge development in Canada in recent years of the Trans-Canada Trail that you both have experience with. So could you talk a little bit about it and what that has been like for you? The Trans-Canada Trail, I guess, is the longest recreational trail in the world. So it's <laughs> 28,000 kilometers long. And we've now walked from the Atlantic coast, so Cape Spear, Newfoundland, to the Pacific coast, Victoria, BC, which is just over 13,700 kilometers of it. We were able to continue during the pandemic. We had to change our plans a little bit to do that. So during 2020, we stayed in our own home province. We were able to keep hiking as long as we didn't leave Ontario. And after that, we were in the prairies, we were in more isolated regions. I guess for us, it's sort of hard to tell how the pandemic affected people hiking on the Trans-Canada Trail because it is so different as you move across the country. We heard reports that many, many, many more people were out in nature during that time than they were before. And we actually offer free presentations to groups across Canada, classrooms, nature groups, hiking trails, basically anybody who's interested in learning about Canada and learning about nature and this trail. And we had an overwhelming number of requests for this presentation during the pandemic. So I think it, it, it certainly was true that people came out in record numbers and were looking for new ways to connect with nature and find ways to hike and places to go. And they were looking for a new way to kind of connect with the landscape. I think we were stunned while walking it in that so many people who had done Camino, as you said, were looking for other alternatives. And Canada has done a lot of Canadian Caminos from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And they're almost in every province. And a lot of people, we kept stumbling upon them and veering off the Trans-Canada Trail to do parts of them and everything. And they're truly wonderful. It's very clear now. You don't necessarily have to go to Europe. I mean, you should try to go to Europe. <laughs> you don't necessarily have to go to Europe to warm up for a Camino, to experience the Camino attitude or mentality. There are so many people in North America and Canada who have brought the Camino home and they're trying to instill that spirit here. And it's really wonderful. That's awesome. Sean and Sonia, we did it. We covered the whole Vaudreuil Commodore. We made it happen in under an hour. That was perfect. 
If people want to learn more about your walking on the Trans-Canada Trail, your other pilgrimage walks, where can they find you? The best place to start is on our website, which is www.comewalkwithus.online. And we have links to all our blogs from all of our Caminos and also our walk across Canada. (laughs) Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you both. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Dr. Dina Weibel is a professor and interim assistant chair in the Department of Anthropology at Grand Valley State University and the author of A Sacred Vertigo, Pilgrimage and Tourism in Rocamadour, France. So Dr. Dina Weibel, thank you again for speaking with me. Before we get into the discussion that's maybe a bit more technical about Rocamadour, I'm just curious what first brought you to it? What made you start visiting Rocamadour and focusing on it as an area of study? Well, I grew up in Southern California, and I was a graduate student in anthropology at uh, UC San Diego, trying to figure out what I wanted to do for my dissertation research. So I knew I was interested in religion. I did not grow up in a religious household, but I had friends from a bajillion different religions. And so it was like massive curiosity about something that I didn't have at home. I really enjoyed learning about religion as an aspect of culture. So I had an advisor at that point in my graduate program, Dr. David K. Jordan. And I was telling him, I want to study a religious community, like a place where there's a religious identification of the site, because I'm curious what the people around it would be like. Would they be more religious, less religious? And I had been thinking about somewhere in the Caribbean. I'd been thinking about, I'd studied French for most of my teenage years and adulthood. And I thought, you know, maybe somewhere that speaks French in the Caribbean. And then one day I came to school and in my graduate student mailbox in the office, there was a postcard and it was the panorama of Rocamadour. And I sought him out and he said, I was just there this summer. I said, can I do anthropology in France? And he said, are there people in France? (laughs) (laughs) Anthropology used to really focus on the idea of studying the other people who were considered primitive or whatever. But over time, it has become much more about looking at people just anywhere, just using particular techniques. And so I was caught off guard by how beautiful it was. And I spoke French. So I was able to go there for the first time in 1995. And I got a very small grant. It was a generous grant for the time, but it was for essentially three weeks of travel in the summer of 1995 to France from the Seroptimist Society of La Jolla. And it was to fund research into issues relating to women and health. And I went to Lourdes and interviewed a bunch of people about women, about their use of the water at Lourdes, and then managed to swing by Rocamadour as part of the same trip. Met a couple of the nuns there. We hit it off, and I had a place to go when I came back to do real research for my dissertation in 1997. What do you love about Rocamador? It's beautiful. It's one of those places where I've left for years at a time and then come back and then to do research over and over. And I don't know, it's hard to explain, but I have it in my imagination. I can go through the entire place just through my mind, right? Because I have such a familiarity with it. It's actually a very small place. But when I get there again in person, it's 
so strange because it feels a lot like stepping into a daydream. What strikes me the most about it is its verticality. <laughs> I have a terrible sense of direction, right? So growing up in Southern California, I would figure out how to get from my house to a friend's house and my house to another friend's house, but didn't understand how to get from one house to another. Rogamador, I don't have to worry about that because you look up and you look down and that's kind of it. I enjoyed that I never got lost and I enjoyed the people. I enjoyed things like going down in the Alzu Canyon and having lunch and looking up. I remember I was reading a book about King Arthur and I was like eating my lunch and looking up and seeing this sort of spectacular leaning cliff of these medieval buildings. And it just was like the most picturesque way to read something set in medieval times. There definitely is a sense of fantasy about the location. Absolutely. What, this is a loaded question, what makes Rocamadour a sacred place? The people of Rocamadour, or if I'm going to say it very Frenchly, Rocamadour, I can't do that very <laughs> often because people get annoyed. <laughs> of course, while I'm there, I can do it. The main thing that people talk about is the Black Madonna, the Black Virgin, La Vierge Noire. And this is a statue of a mother and child carved out of wood with sort of pieces of silver in different locations. It is black in color, but why is up for debate. It is considered to be a very earthy, very primitive, I did scare quotes when I said primitive, depiction of the Virgin Mary and Jesus by most people. It's considered to be sort of powerful in its crudeness, if that makes any sense. There are a lot of depictions of the Virgin Mary and Jesus where they're done with beautiful attention to detail and realistic colors and this idea of something artistic by somebody who was trained. And I think this particular statue, because its origins are sort of shrouded in mystery, and because it does look kind of like somebody just took a little axe or something and cut it out of a piece of wood. And it was more important to have it than to have it look good. It looks fine, but it doesn't look like most of those things. So I think there's this affection for it in terms of wondering where it came from, who made it, the story that it's associated with this hermit who might be Zacchaeus, who was called Saint Amador retroactively. It's a sign that there has been Christian worship in France for longer than anybody has a record of, and kind of ties France to this longer history of Christianity in a way that a lot of French people are proud of. There are two pieces there I want to follow up on. The first one is this story, the questions surrounding the Black Madonnas. I've read a lot of different theories, ideas about what's happening there. What's your best understanding of what is going on with the Black Madonnas across France and Europe? Okay, so this is where I can play my anthropology card. Great. I'm less trying to come up with an answer that I think is true and more trying to understand the different answers that people give me. I actually had somebody at Rocamador once who had converted to Catholicism and she said, you know, you can't, you can't understand this unless you believe it yourself. She told me, it's like you're looking at a painting, but you're blind. You can't see it. And I said, I'm not trying to describe the painting. I'm trying to analyze people's descriptions of the painting. It's one thing for me to see it myself, but what I'm really interested in is, in terms of what the Black Madonnas are, how different people understand them. 
So if I would talk to the priests in and around Rokmadur, it was like, okay, yeah, somebody came there, started some kind of veneration of the Virgin Mary. And some of these statues, including the one at Rokmadur, were exposed to smoke. Like the one at Rokmadur, they were plated with silver. You get that dark tarnish. And you have this idea that the older and darker the statue, the more established the church is, the more credibility the church has. So you had newer churches that intentionally created Madonnas that were colored black to kind of give them that <laughs> credibility of being an older church. So that's one explanation. When I talked to a lot of people who visited Broke Madur, who believed in energy, who were members of earth-based religions like Wicca or considered themselves to be neo-pagan or something similar, there were people who thought, okay, you have a history in these regions of religions that existed before Christianity ever got there. A lot of them had goddesses like Isis, like Sibel. People don't always realize that the Roman Empire took in Egyptian gods and goddesses, and then when it spread out, those gods and goddesses, in addition to the Roman and Greek pantheon, who overlapped, were worshipped in places like England and like France. And not everybody did that, but some of them did. And so you have this history of pre-Christian goddesses being worshipped throughout Europe, and often the depictions of them, I've been told and read, are dark in color, especially since dark earth is associated with fertility. So you have the notion that in the same way that pagan sacred places were sort of rechristened, <laughs> given Christian names, things named after gods were named after saints, but they were allowed to remain being sacred places, that perhaps some of these statues of, you know, Sibel or Aphrodite were actually reconfigured, reused, reinterpreted as Christian symbols. And so the dark color comes from their pre-Christian origins representing fertility. It's hard to argue that the Virgin Mary that you see at Rokmador, which is very clearly, I talked to Father Rokoshe, who sponsored me at the University of Toulouse. He said, you know, oh yeah, it's, it's the throne of wisdom pose. It's a classic thing. There's no way that this is a pagan thing. But at the same time, if you're creating something in the style of the pagan thing, maybe you're going to bring more of the pagans in, right? <laughs> so I think there's legitimacy for both views. I've heard other things, such as an African woman who visited Rokmadur once. I don't have my notes and I can't remember where she was from. It might have been in the book, who had heard a story of somebody in Africa carving the Virgin Mary and Jesus out of ebony or another dark wood and it being thrown into the ocean and floating and being discovered and being used to set up Rokmador. That was not a story I heard very often, just that one time. Another person, the one who said I, it was like trying to describe a painting as a blind person, she believed that when in the Bible it says a shadow fell over Mary when she's talking to the angel Gabriel, that the dark virgins were indicating that shadow falling over the Virgin Mary. I don't use people's real names, but I'm supposed to use her real name. She always told me if I ever referenced that. So Heather Buttery said that. In any case, I think there are a lot of stories. I don't know, but I've always been struck by how similar the Virgin of Rokamador looks to depictions of Isis and Horus. There's a very similar long limbs, thin posture, very rigid seating. And I have actually 
if I were in my office at work, I could show you, but I have statues of the Black Virgin at Rocamadour and one of Isis and Horus, where they look very, very similar. That's really interesting. Thanks for laying all of that out. I want to connect that then to the broader history of Rocamadour as a pilgrimage destination. You've mentioned the central role of the Black Madonna as being linked to the sacred aspect of the shrine. You touched briefly on St. Amador. At what point did Rocamadour become a destination for pilgrims and what drove that process? We don't know for sure, for sure. But the first written record is in the 11th century, where you had a group of monks who took over Rocamadour in terms of managing it as a pilgrimage destination. And there was some infighting among different groups of monks to finally get that permission. And that's when they start writing about Rocamadour. There was a papal bull that was sent that established this particular group of monks as the ones who were going to manage Rocamadour. And then one of their lot about I don't know, several decades later, started a book of miracles for Rocamador, which was kind of a way to advertise the power of a particular shrine by keeping track of all the miracles said to occur there. And then word gets out that miracles have occurred. So people are more likely to come. So it's actually a really good thing to have a book of miracles to bring people in. We don't know before these written records popped up what was going on because we don't have any evidence for it. We do know that it was a major pilgrimage destination in the 11th and 12th centuries, and that it fell into disarray and eventually kind of was restored in the 19th century, but never reached the prominence that it had in the 12th, where you had like St. Louis going there and his mother, Blanche de Castille, and you had all of these other famous people going on pilgrimage to Rocamdor, and it was quite the destination. Definitely picked up in the 20th century, but it's not the religious destination on the same level that it was 800 years ago. <laughs> and that's what I want to talk about in the, the second half of this, because this is where your research comes in, this tension that's at work in Rocamador. And so let's just kind of quickly start with the theoretical and then get into what you have seen firsthand. Your book begins with some theoretical framing contrasting the Turner's idea of communitas and Eid and Salno's notion of competing motivations and beliefs. Can you kind of encapsulate what's at the heart of that disagreement and why it is particularly relevant to Rocamador? Sure. And as somebody who teaches, I think I'm going to try to bring it to, you know, I'm not going to try to go full theory on it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to make it a little bit more straightforward. So Victor and Edith Turner were anthropological married couple, and they converted to Roman Catholicism. And one of the things they studied later in their careers was Catholic pilgrimage. And they were struck by the idea that pilgrims coming to a shrine, especially the ones they experienced, were connected in experience to other pilgrims, both around them at the time of the visit, but also in the past and also in the future. This idea of the sort of great connected pilgriminity, I don't know the word to use there, pilgrimitude, I'm making things up, but like you've done work with Compostela and that's a great example of it. So people who do that pilgrimage, they do feel connected to people from the past and other people they haven't met. And when people who are doing the Camino meet each other, it's like they already have something in common, right? It's this very strong bond. 
And that's the idea of communitas, which is just basically Latin for community. It's the sense that the normal differences that would, I don't know, I'll make this up, but like, let's say that somebody is a Republican from Alabama and they're white and they meet an African-American pilgrim from Chicago who's a Democrat, but they're both on the Camino. It's like the Camino-ness, that shared experience might make them overlook everything else. The other differences don't matter. Somebody can be rich, somebody could be poor. It doesn't matter. The Turner said that there was this great connection that hits people on pilgrimage. And it's the ideal in places like Mecca, for instance, where you know people all come at the same time of year, they converge on Mecca, but they're rich, they're poor, they're men, they're women. Normally you would separate men and women in Islam for worship at Mecca. People are side by side. So that idea of sameness kind of overarches everything. With Eden Salno, it was sort of looking at the research that people had been doing, looking for this evidence of sameness and going, yeah, it's kind of there. But then there's also like a lot of line drawing and differences that come up. And people really do say, this is, you know, not what I'm doing, or I don't agree with this approach. Or like at Mecca, if you're very rich, you're going to stay in a very nice hotel. If you're poor, you might sleep on the street. The reality of it is that it's not quite as connected as perhaps the Turners thought it might be. I found that to be really important looking at Rocamador because when I started interviewing people, they weren't even there for the same reasons. They weren't interpreting the same place as the same kind of place. The differences were certainly as striking as the similarities. What are the differences? What are the major different drivers that are bringing people to Rocamador? So if we go back in time, obviously it's once again that Black Madonna. It's the idea that this was a shrine, that's origins are hidden, started by a pious hermit. I mean, that's kind of the story behind it. It was such a place of faith that people were able to build in the 1400s, buildings that literally stick to the side of a cliff. And I, I cannot stress this enough. Some of the church buildings halfway up this cliff, it's like a normal wall and a normal wall and a normal wall and the cliff. It's amazing. And it's not like it's carved down or made smooth. It's like a bumpy, craggy cliff. And when it rains, rain flows down, I mean, inside the basilica, inside the chapel. And the connection to the, the cliff is very striking. And when you look at that and think, okay, these folks didn't have cranes, they didn't have the technology, they didn't have electricity. How on earth did they do this? It's a testament to faith, but it's also the kind of a testament to God's will from a Christian perspective that it is there in the first place. So it's kind of like seeing this anti-gravity, amazing kind of church scenario. And sometimes people feel that when they go to other cathedrals where they're amazing and they're tall and how would anybody have built this? And it's overwhelming. So that's the first group. They tend to see Rocamadour as a shrine that has a long Christian heritage. It's fairly close to Lourdes. It's fairly close to different paths on the Camino. And so it becomes part of a general sacred landscape, but it's important to the people who live in the Lotz, which is the department where it is, as a religious symbol, as their own pilgrimage spot, as a place where the Virgin Mary visited them. From a Catholic perspective, it's got all of that. On the other hand, when I started interviewing pilgrims, I kept running into pilgrims who weren't Christian. 
and who would tell me things like, well, this is a point of energy where people can, pilgrims can exchange energy with the earth, or this is a place where the goddess was worshipped. I remember going to the nuns and saying, I just did an interview, and she was telling me that this is a note of energy, and one of the nuns said, that's not in catechism. I said, <laughs> no, I didn't think it was in catechism, but what's going on with that? And she's like, oh yeah, we get them all the time. I had to shoo some of them out of the chapel the other day because they were trying to play music and they were doing this weird stuff. And sometimes they pray to the cliff instead of the statue of Jesus. <laughs> and, you know, this notion that there was this other group that came in and did weird religious things. And once I got people to tell me about it, because they were sort of like, well, you're here studying the pilgrimage, not that stuff. I'm like, no, I want to know about that stuff. <laughs> then it became, it was interesting to me, that division. Because if you do take the pre-Christian stuff into account, if you do take the cliffness of the cliff, I know that doesn't make any sense, but there's a very strong feeling of being enthralled to nature there. Have you been? I think. Yeah. I figured since it was on your cover, I was like, okay, he's been there. But it's really striking. And it's striking in a very sort of natural way. And people who participate in Wicca or earth-based religions tend to see feminine figures as indications of the presence of the goddess. It depends on which like flavor of neo-paganism you're participating in, or for that matter, what flavor of Wicca you're participating in. But the idea was that all spiritual and religious feminine images are, according to this view, really portrayals of the goddess. The goddess can manifest in different forms. And so this shrine becomes an important place to worship the feminine divine, which is not a Catholic way of looking at it at all. The Virgin Mary, of course, is considered extremely important as Jesus's mother. She went to heaven. She's, you know, the intercessor for humankind, but she's not a goddess, right? She's not the goddess. She's not something that counters the Christian God. And so this is an interesting tension that is developed there. And then you have the energy people who overlap with the goddess people, where the idea is that there are ley lines in different parts of the world. These are paths of energy where two ley lines intersect. You have kind of a specific node of power and that people are drawn to these areas of power, that they have the potential to transform people. Something similar that I was told by the locals at Rocamadour was that there was an underground river of something they called énergie tellurique. So tellurian energy, telluric energy, but essentially this sort of earth-based flow of some kind of energy. It was variously described to me by different pilgrims as microwave radiation, as something to do with magnetic resonance. There were different names for it, but they all had to do with energy and that people are drawn to those places. They feel something when they're there and they want to build something and it can overlap with the goddess idea. So the goddess idea kind of anthropomorphizes the energy, but the energy doesn't have to be anthropomorphized. So they were there to bask in the energy, to absorb the energy, to be changed. I was told that I was lucky I was there because my soul was evolving just by being in the presence of the place. So this underground river of telluric energy that the locals believed in, it was supposed to emerge in Rokumador, which 
depending on who you talk to, some of the locals were like, yeah, it's amazing. It's powerful. It makes everything beautiful here. And other people, one lady in particular who was not religious, but who still believed in the energy explanation, she said, no, it's what makes all the merchants fight with each other. It causes all of these problems. (laughs) (laughs) So that leads me into the third group, which were the atheists. And Rocamadour is in France. And France is very famously a predominantly-ish, I would say it's like changing. It goes back and forth. But there are a lot of atheists in France. The French in general tend to see themselves as very rational, very logical. Even the French priests and nuns, I know, a lot of them were like, there's no such thing as miracles. <laughs> Apart from the resurrection, you don't have to believe in any of it. You know, whatever. Very dismissive of things. Very, very rational. And so for them, Rocamadour becomes this beautiful like place to time travel to pretend you're in medieval times, to go hiking, to go in a hot air balloon, to go rafting, to visit Le Gouffre de Paderac, which is this amazing underground river, and to sort of get in nature, get a taste of history, eat the local foods. But pilgrimage becomes part of the history of Rocamadour. So they don't think of contemporary pilgrims. They don't think people are literally passing through there. It's more like oh, I'm going to go to this restaurant and have the pilgrim menu. Oh, look, it's got a cute little pilgrim. And I'm going to order the local pork with a piece of Rocamador's cheese and some walnuts. And it becomes part of the history. Kind of like if somebody went to, I don't know, Colonial Williamsburg and was trying to experience what life was like in the you know, 1600s, 1700s. They're not thinking about contemporary people in Williamsburg, it becomes the sort of historical overlay. And I think Rocamadour, because it does not look like a normal city at all, it's super medieval, and it's remote, and it's on a cliff. It's just a very strange place to visit, and that draws people in. But what they bring with them determines how they interpret it, I think. On the surface, it seems like this could be all well and good for Rocamadour, the sacred shrine, because Good to have more people there. Bad to be sort of isolated and forgotten. Money comes in, keeps the place functional in business. But are there downsides to Rocamador, the Sacred Shrine, with these different competing uses all in play? I don't think that the neo-pagan Wiccan New Age part is, and those are three separate things. I'm not lumping them together, but I kind of associate them as being sort of the non-Christian versions. I don't think that is necessarily causing any harm. I think that actually might bring in more money. I think what the tourism has done is it's created a situation where Rocamadour is no longer a regular town. And because it's no longer a regular town, it has to rely on tourism. And that makes it a very weird place to live. Over the winters when I was there in mostly 98 through 99, but I was there in 95, 97. I'm not going to list all the stuff. (laughs) I was there a bunch of times. But if you're there over the winter, it's like the permanent population is under 70 people and there is no grocery store. In the summer, there's like a little, I don't know, it reminds me of like a 7-Eleven. It's like a little shop that you can go and get basics so you're not going to starve. But the closest grocery store is about five miles away. There's food trucks that would come in in the winter so that people wouldn't have to travel to get food. But it doesn't have the normal stuff that you would expect. It used to have a post office. It didn't even have that anymore in 2018 when I was there the last time. So essentially, it's like 
when tourism is the most profitable thing and you have such a low population throughout most of the year, there's no benefit in having anymore a tobacco shop, a post office, a place for locals to buy food. And so essentially it went from being a normal town that had a shrine to a shrine where the whole existence of the community around it, which is very small, is just to support the shrine. Mm. I knew one person who had a job cleaning houses and she was the only person that I met who did not have a tourism related job. People might be thinking of something like Orlando, like, oh, everybody in Orlando has got a tourism related job, but they don't, right? So you have like a place to get your car fixed in Orlando, or you have people who have places where you can buy gardening equipment, you know, stuff for local people, not stuff for visitors. And that just doesn't exist anymore in Rocamadour. You have to go to Kama, which is fine. But if you're on foot, or if you've taken the train, or if you are elderly, it's much, much harder to live in a community that doesn't support its local people anymore. So I definitely think that's a downside. I definitely think that the community, even to some extent, while I've been studying it over almost 25 years, I think it has become much harder to be a resident. It's like if people were trying to live in Disneyland or something. I was also struck in your book, A Sacred Vertigo, by how it seemed like the shrine developed these ideas about how we're going to capitalize on the tourists and that worked to their detriment. Yeah. So that's been one of the things that has been beneficial about doing this long-term research. So like a typical anthropologist goes, does her dissertation research, publishes a book. And I didn't do that. I kept going with the research. And so I've got like decades long. And so it's been interesting to watch whether the tourism and the religious aspects of the shrine are enemies or friends depends on what's going on historically during that time period. So when I was first doing my serious research there in the mid to late 1990s, there was the sense that tourism really was the main thing going on there and that the religious part of the shrine, the way Rokamadur is set up is that halfway up the cliff, there is kind of a collection of religious buildings. Some of them are churches. One of them is a shop that sells religious goods, religious music, rosaries, statues, you know, this kind of thing. There was a museum of religious art, and this was all run by the local diocese. So you have this diocese of Kaur, because Kaur is kind of the religious area, the closest uh, larger city. And then Rokamadur is part of that. And so it had this diocesan presence where you had people who were tour guides who worked for the diocese, and you had people who ran the stores that worked for the diocese, and you had the nuns and the priests. The nuns had pilgrimage places where pilgrims could stay. Very nice, I've been told. The castle on the top, which was kind of reworked in the 1800s, that had lodging for pilgrims. And this kind of meant that there were pilgrims, people were coming through, you had people from other places in France that would, like an entire congregation would come and visit Rocamadour together. It was harmonious in a way, but at the same time, there were issues. So for instance, and this is so hard to explain without pictures and diagrams, but the tourist areas of Rocamadour are in two places, at the bottom of the cliff where you have a lot of shops and houses, 
a few houses, shops, restaurants, hotels. And then you go up the grand staircase, uh, Le Grand Escalier, and you get to the church area. And it is a few homes up there, a few touristy shops and a place to get ice cream now, but mostly a church courtyard. And it's all the chapels and churches and the museum and the, the religious store. Then you have a way of the cross where you take a zigzag route up to the top of the cliff where the castle is. And there's pilgrim lodging up there, but that's also where you're going to find a lot of other hotels and restaurants and tourist shops and ice cream. What was going on in the late 1990s is that the priest who was sort of the rector at the time, he really wanted to keep the courtyard religious in nature. Mm -hmm. He did not want it to be a tourist place because French tourists and tourists like tourists all over, you know, there's like glittering and people are wearing shorts and they might have their dogs with them. And it's this very chaotic kind of thing. Most tourists don't like express reverence as they move through the tourist attraction. And so he wanted to make the church courtyard, Le Parvis, more reverent. So he proposed three rules. No dogs could pass through the church courtyard. You couldn't wear shorts. You had to dress modestly through the church courtyard. And he didn't want any trash cans out in the church courtyard. And he was countered by the people who ran the shops because they said, listen, if somebody is shopping at the top of the cliff and they want to visit my restaurant at the bottom of the cliff, then they have to go through the church courtyard. Now, I will say that if you take the elevators, which cost money, there are two of them. One of them is pretty fancy and goes through the rock and is technological marvel. The other is just kind of a little one that goes up and down and uh, is privately owned. But you can skip the church courtyard if you're willing to pay, but a lot of people don't have the money to pay. So if you cut off the church courtyard from passersby, you would have people who could visit the top of Rocamadour, who could visit the bottom of Rocamadour, but unless you got in your car and went the long way, you couldn't easily get from one to the other. So the merchant said, you're going to cut into our business with this. We're not going to let you do it. People have to have their dogs because this is France after all. <laughs> if you've spent time in France, you know, you bring your dog with you on yep. vacation. That's common. And so dogs are everywhere at tourist sites. And they also said, you know, it gets to be so hot here. You can't say people can't wear shorts on vacation because they might pass through the church courtyard. That's unreasonable. But we'll let you say, okay, but no trash cans in the church courtyard. That's fine. <laughs> So I had arrived right after that happened, and that priest had to kind of give in on two of the things. The only thing that he won on was no trash cans in the church courtyard, and that meant people didn't know where to throw stuff away, and they would like pop into the store or the museum for trash cans, but that was all. It was not beneficial to the people who were working there, didn't increase their business, mostly increased the hassle. So that was kind of what was going on in the mid to late 90s was the sense that the tourist aspects of the shrine were kind of keeping the religious aspects in place. Like there was a separation and capitalism was winning. And then as time passed into the first decade of the 21st century, you had this kind of, this happened mostly when I wasn't on site and I you would hear about it going back and forth, but there was a treasurer for the diocese who had big ideas. And his notion was, the first thing was, I'm going to take the little museum and we're going to renovate it. We're going to modernize it. It's going to be amazing. And we're going to have people come here just to see the museum. 
and it's going to be great. So he spent a lot of money on the museum, a lot of the, the money from the diocese on the museum, and they renovated the museum and the prices went up and very few people came. It was a disaster and was spoken openly by the locals of that. But he said, okay, fine. Nobody wants to go to a fancy museum, but let's do this. And he had two other main ideas. One is that the place you presumably stayed with the priests in the castle where they had pilgrim lodging, he had that turned into a hotel restaurant called Le Relais des Remparts. And the idea there was that tourists could stay there. And instead of having a dining hall where like a cafeteria, the way it was before, it would be a restaurant and people would come and they would stay there and it would be amazing and they'd have the best view, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it was kind of a good idea in practice. It did not receive the numbers of visitors because there were a lot of other hotels competing with it. Plus, because it was used to being a pilgrimage lodge, there was an expectation from the workers there that people would be returning to their rooms early on, <laughs> that they wouldn't be out. I mean, Rokumadur, they developed a nightclub when I was there, like kind of a comedy club that would sometimes do plays. It was an interesting place to visit. But they were trying to establish a nightlife. And so having a hotel that would not let you participate in the nightlife didn't work out well. And then the third thing that happened in between my visits that I heard a lot about was the same priest decided he was going to work with one of the local animal parks. And I haven't talked about that, but the tourism at Rocamadour isn't just the beauty of the site. It's also different sort of side businesses that have brought on I don't know if you've ever spent any time in Southern California, but like near Knott's Berry Farm, which is a big amusement park, there's like an alligator farm nearby and there's a wax museum nearby. And Rocamadour's got kind of the same stuff. And one of the things that they have is a bird park, a park for raptors, birds of prey, called Le Rocher des Aigles, the Eagle's Rock. And this has a nice overlap with the pilgrimage idea because of you know, medieval falconry and birds of prey were there, you know, for hundreds of years. And it's part of the natural landscape, opposed to the monkey forest, which was not part of the natural landscape in medieval times. So this priest reached out to the folks at uh, Eagle's Rock and said, let's come up with a multimedia spectacular. We're going to have live actors. We're going to have recordings. It's going to be about this young boy who meets this falcon named Falco. And Falco is a thousand years old, and he's going to tell him about the history of Rokmador's pilgrimage. And there will be live music and lights and real birds, and it's going to be amazing. And celebrities are going to come, and heads of state are going to come, and people are going to stay until this ends at 10, and then it'll be too late for them to drive back home, so they'll stay at our hotels. And this is really going to put Rokmador on the map. Well, this didn't go as well as he had planned. He ran into some financial difficulties. He didn't pay the actors. I remember one of my visits, that was the big scandal that he hadn't paid the actors. And this priest ended up convicted of fraud for mishandling funds. Oh my goodness. And ended up in jail for four months. I use his real name in my book because he is now deceased and this is all a matter of public record. Typically anthropologists use pseudonyms, but yeah. It was a bad, bad scenario. So when I came back to the shrine to do some research in 2003, this had all gone down. There was this huge financial depression affecting the area. A new bishop had taken over the diocese and had essentially said, okay, we are shutting down 
everything that we do at Rocamador except the pilgrimage store, the religious store. We're not going to do tours. We're not going to have a hotel restaurant. We're not going to put on a spectacular. None of that is happening. We're not even going to do guided tours. We're going to do nothing except the store. The store is the only thing turning a profit and we're just going to shut everything down. So dozens of people were laid off, which was a really, really big deal. It just hit Rocamadour very hard financially. At around this time, another priest came in to be the rector of Rocamadour. And I had seen him when he became a, a deacon, actually, that ordination. And very popular, very good looking and funny and friendly, charismatic guy. He took over Rocamadour. And what was interesting is I used the word charismatic, like to mean he had a good personality. But he was also a charismatic Catholic. And this is a movement in Catholicism that stemmed from Protestant Christianity, which essentially is different from mainstream Catholicism in that it allows for the possibility that the Holy Ghost can be present, can affect people. There's definitely more of a sense of possession as a possibility, a sense of the presence of God, a sense of meditation. I'm not describing it super well, but it has elements of Pentecostalism, if you're familiar with Pentecostal Christianity, that work their way into Catholicism. And he was from that perspective. And I remember when he was first ordained as a deacon, the nuns kind of gossiping about, he was a little odd with some of that. But he became very popular. He was very popular with the younger members of the congregation because he was young himself. So youth groups just loved him. He was very interested in reinstating pilgrimage. He led, when I went to Lourdes with the diocese of Rocamadour, of Caor and Rocamadour, he led that pilgrimage, the youth pilgrims. When he and another person became deacons, they arranged a walking pilgrimage from Gramat to Rocamadour, which is a really small walking pilgrimage, like five miles, but it was a bunch of kids and it was fun and interesting to do. So he was sort of restoring Rocamadour. Great at social media, but also restoring Rocamador in a way where the religious aspects of Rocamador went to the forefront. So, for instance, there was a downplaying of religion in the 90s. By the time Father Tristan, and I, I use Tristan because it sounds romantic and that's kind of his vibe. By the time he took over after a few years, Rocamador has a cheese festival, which is this very kind of secular relaxed. Everybody goes and tries different kinds of cheese. It's awesome. It's like one of my favorite things there. He made sure to do a religious ceremony near where the cheese festival was being held. So as people parked, they were seeing this full ceremony taking place, whereas it would have been hidden in the 90s. So he was very much like in your face about the religious aspects of Rocamador. And people would participate in religion with him in ways that were kind of a return to pre-Vatican norms. So typically, if you take communion after Vatican II, you would take it in your hands. And before Vatican II, the priest would put the communion wafer directly into your mouth. The idea being that if it goes in your mouth, you're less likely to drop it. But it's also a little, you know, kind of a weird thing. And some people didn't like it. And so holding it themselves and then eating it on their own was different. He reinstated the putting the communion wafer directly in your mouth. There's a lot more kneeling going on when he would do his sermons and his masses. So it was kind of like a return to the past. He was also royalty, which is something that my elderly 
participants would sometimes be very, oh yes, he's very handsome. He's from this royal family and kind of thing. It was kind of like a, I don't want to say it wasn't exactly a cult of personality, but there was a an element of that going on. So he was at Rokemador for quite a while, kind of reestablished it as a religious site, got youth pilgrimages going massively increased. Volunteers coming to Rokemador increased. Using social media, using Facebook, he was just an expert at that. And then he he was brought to Cao, kind of to the center of the diocese, and given a position there a very high one. I can't remember if he was rector. I, I don't remember. But then he just disappeared. And I don't mean he disappeared like he was a missing person, but something happened where he lost his position, where he was taken down from his position of responsibility in Cao, and people were not informed in the community what was going on. So all I've been able to establish since then are rumors, right, that he had a love affair. The bishop said it wasn't anything illegal, but it was something that apparently violated his vows. So I don't know what happened. There's actually a Facebook group dedicated to like returning him to Kao, returning him to Rokamador, and people will share their memories of interacting with him. They will wish him a happy birthday. It's a very strange kind of thing. And last time I looked, it still had not been resolved. People say he's in Rome. People say he's in Rocamador. People say he's with his family, that it's terrible. It gets political where his conservative leanings are considered by some in the group to have countered the more liberal leanings of the bishop. And so this is considered political punishment because, you know, oh, the current pope is considered to be liberal by a lot of folks. And so there's a tendency for there to be conspiracy theories in this group and also a tendency to have this particular priest as sort of the center of attention in a way that seems a little almost like he's got a guru status in a way. I don't know the answer to what happened there, but it was an interesting trajectory to pay attention to and write about. Yeah. I think his successor is sort of trying to keep it up, but does not have the amount of charisma that the last one did. That's really fascinating. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation in pilgrimage circles about the tension between pilgrim and tourist, between sacred and secular. And it's really interesting to see it from the other side and what's happening locally and what's happening between the the merchants and the church in Rocamadour and, and how that plays out and how it reshapes the environment that we are walking into in ways that we would otherwise not be able to discern. So mm-hmm. thanks for that. Thanks for everything that you've shared over the course of this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me. I have a confession to make. When I brought my students to Rocamadour, we surprised them in the afternoon with a trip to visit the Monkey Sanctuary, just a little way outside of town on the top of the hill. I felt kind of guilty about that after hearing Dina talk about the problems created by tourism or Commodore. Kind of. But hey, it's a forest full of monkeys, and you get a handful of popcorn to distribute, hand to paw. And my goodness, do monkeys love popcorn. And you get to watch them lounging in the grass, blissful in repose. 
and then periodically munching on orange slices and romaine lettuce and tomatoes. And periodically, they get grumpy with each other, but that's funny too. It's absolutely ridiculous, and it's certainly a jarring contrast to the austerity of the shrine. There's no more glaring epithet you can hurl at a pilgrim than tourist. Everybody wants to be a quote-unquote real pilgrim, to exemplify the qualities and virtues of pilgrimhood. But, you know, sometimes it's kind of fun to be a tourist. And on a long trip, over five weeks or more, I think those flashes of silly fun can help to keep you fully engaged with the more serious stuff. So, in hindsight, no. I don't feel bad about visiting the monkeys. But I do hope that Rokamador is able to find ways to preserve the integrity of the shrine and to increase the livability of the village. It's monkeys. Who can say no to monkeys? I'll wrap up with a scheduling note. I'm off to Spain today for a quick jaunt on the Camino de Madrid, and then I have a short school trip soon after I return. And I need to do a competent job of teaching in between. I'm hopeful I can keep the weekly episodes on track, but don't be shocked if there are some small delays. I'll do my best. Been a pretty good run. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Sean and Sonia for speaking with me. You can find them at comewalkwithus.online. Thanks as well to Dina Weibel. You can find her online at dinaweibel.space, D-E-A-N-A-W-E-I-B-E-L, where she is exploring the relationship between religion and outer space. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. I will be back. Not too long.